Welcome back to the Unschool Files podcast. I'm your host, Megan, and you are listening to episode 38. This episode is all about teens. It's about connecting. It's about partnership. I'm speaking with Erin Jantz, a Southern California mom who has children ranging from age 9 to 18. Um, Several of them are teenagers, and this conversation is so good. So let's just jump right in. Join me in welcoming Erin Jantz to the podcast. Welcome, Erin, to the Unschool Files podcast. I'm so excited to finally be speaking with you. Me too. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, um, and what your relationship is to unschooling. Sure. So I've actually been thinking about how I would answer this because I feel like there are a variety of aspects of my life that are relevant to this conversation. Um, So this might feel a little like a a resume for a second, but... (laughs) Um, I, before I was an unschooler, um, or an unschooling, well, I consider myself an unschooler also, but certainly before I was a parent who was unschooling children, uh, I earned a degree in, um, adolescent and child developmental psychology. And so felt like I knew a lot or, you know, thought I knew a lot going into being a parent. Um, and we have four kids. And then after I had several kids, I got another degree in um, essentially developmental spirituality. So how do we develop a healthy spirituality as, as humans and do that? And I'm doing all of this educational work as I'm raising my children at the same time, right? So I'm getting educated. They're doing things. And we actually, our oldest um, went to preschool, play-based preschool that we really loved, and then went to kindergarten, uh, went to first grade. And in first grade in particular, um, in kindergarten, her teacher had expressed some concerns about reading. Oh, actually not reading wasn't even the problem. Um, expressed some concerns about her writing, that she would reverse letters like B and D and um, these kind of things. And I kept just feeling like, I don't, I don't see the problem. I don't understand why this is a problem. Like Mm. she's five, you know, why is this a problem? Uh, She was doing fine in preschool. Like, I don't, I don't understand what the problem is. And she got into first grade and I started to realize that the problem was not that they were concerned that she had a learning disability or something. The the problem was that she wasn't going to be able to keep up with curriculum Mm. if she couldn't do that. And so she started first grade was awful um, where she would just have anxiety every morning and upset stomach. I don't want to go. And um, we started getting letters from, the school that they were going to basically call CPS because she had too many tardies. And my, my partner, my husband, who at the time was, he was doing all the morning drop-off stuff. He was going in every morning and doing the whole routine of here's why we're late. And, um, and we just kind of didn't know what to do. And I was talking to her teacher and her teacher's like, well, she's doing fine because she's not dropping down into what would be considered a remedial group. Mm. Um, but she's just not 
like an honors student. Anyway, and we just, it just kept piling on and getting worse and worse and worse. And so we finally, at the end of first grade, we're like, let's take a break. Let's pull her out for a year. We'll do school at home. We'll catch her up and then she can go back. Yeah. And our sweet little girl just came alive at home. It was like her little introverted self was so much happier and she took off and doing lots of things that they had kept telling me she's struggling. She's behind, she's behind, she's behind. It's like, I don't think she is. Um, anyway. And at the end of that year, she was like, I don't want to go back. I never. Um, and she's still to this day, she's like, I will never go to school again. Um, <laughs> uh, but that, that led us into um, doing school at home and slowly added the other kids to that for different reasons, you know, kind of each one had their own where we thought, I don't think school's a good fit for you. Uh, and that's always been an ongoing conversation in our home of, mm -hmm. do you still like this? Do you still want to do this? Um, mm -hmm. But then that led to eventually a uh, <laughs> an ego crisis for me because I had three kids. I was in grad school. I was working. I was, as many mothers do, bearing the brunt of um, school at home load. And then I got pregnant <laughs> with number four. And what do you, what do you know? It was too much. Um, <laughs> I couldn't do all those things. No, so, you weren't know, pregnant. <laughs> I couldn't handle three different grade levels and, and a, a baby and a toddler. And so I was like, let's just take a couple months off. Let's, I just need a break. I got to get through my own finals. You know, let me graduate and then we'll kind of pick back up because it's homeschool, right? You can do it year round. It's, it's fine. And we, in those couple months, it was like, oh, wait a second. People started reading. And I know there's more to it than that, but like people started reading on their own. Um, people started, they were still figuring out math things. They were learning all kinds of stuff about nature. Oh, maybe we don't need to rush back into this. Anyway, and that slowly led us to unschooling, and I would categorize as a pedagogy, like unschooling as an educational tool, mm -hmm. um, which then slowly over a few more years led to what now, for the last several years we've been practicing is more of a, all the adjectives, right? It's a liberation-centered, you know, child-led, um, empowering, anti-racist, freedom-minded, like, life um, yeah. partnership with our kids. So it's it's been a long walk, um, but I feel like, and I'm really thankful for, I think, unschooling as education, because that, for us, I think, was the gateway to a life now that we really love and would never go back to anything else for, so. Yeah. Okay, so do you think you could distinguish the difference between unschooling as a pedagogy and unschooling as the latter that you just described as um, liberation work, as collective 
um, healing as, you know, all of, all of those adjectives, what, what would you say is the, is the big difference for people who are listening and maybe are completely unaware? Sure. I, (laughs) in some ways, I think it's, it's literally when I'm speaking, which one would I say first? Um, and for me, unschooling is a technical term that falls under the umbrella of homeschooling. So I still, if people ask me, what school do my kids go to? What grade are they in? I still answer through that lens, right? Oh, they're in this and this and this grade. They're these ages. And if then someone asks me, what curriculum am I using? My answer is we unschool, which to most people means the kids get to follow their own interests. They get to follow their own passions. Um, they're choosing what to learn and what order to learn. They're learning from life. For me now, the liberation centered, I think I would start with saying, well, we live in a partnership-based, consent-oriented, liberation-focused family. Um, We look for, we are consensual family. Oh, well, how do your kids learn? They're unschooled. Like that it's, it's now a secondary thing. It's not the leading adjective to me. And for me now, unschooling is something that just fits into our anti-oppression, anti-system, anti-institutional yeah. <laughs> uh, mindset. Uh, it's So it's not, to me, unschooling is not the umbrella term for those things. Um, I... I I feel, and I feel like maybe we've kind of talked about this in other contexts a little bit, but I, I feel like I move more and more away from the term unschooling all the time because it's so associated with homeschooling and education and right. learning. Um, and I feel like, well, that doesn't actually describe our lives. That describes a particular aspect of our lives. Right. Does that answer does that, answer that question? It does. I, like it I does. rambled um, there. Yeah, no. Si- similarly, um, I usually describe... Um, unschooling as if when someone's ready to talk more about unschooling and not just, oh, your children don't go to school um, or, oh, they're homeschooled as as not necessarily about school or not school. So I love your, um, I love the way you distinguish the difference. Um, I like the words you put around it. I think that's really, really great Um, because when I say it's not necessarily about school or not school, it doesn't really capture all that nuance that you just kind of captured. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because someone might go, well, then what's the point is like unschooling (laughs) is not about school. Then what's it about? And it is, it's, it's for, for me, similarly, it is partnership. Um, it is love centered. Um, it is all of it, it is liberation work that happens at home that expands outward by, our just way of being, our the way we exist, the way we move through the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I love that you made the distinction between just unschooling as an educational approach. I've never heard anybody else say that before. So oh. <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> Good. Yay. Yeah. I say it all the time because I, to me, unschooling is both a technical term and a code word. Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's a technical term and it's like a password for, hey, you know, you want to yeah. come in and have this cool conversation over here? Like, yeah, you know, but yeah, it's, it's both of those things to me. And I think distinguishing it is really important because yeah. I think there's a lot of people who would say 
that they have child-led learning. They would say that their mm -hmm. students are self-directed, but they would also say, oh, but I tell them when to eat, when to go to bed, when, you know, what they can and can't do. And it's like, oh, well, that's not what I do. And right. for me, those things are all wrapped up together. And so we have to, I have to distinguish those things. But. Yeah, definitely. Well, my next question was going to be, how do you define your approach? But I feel like that pretty, this pretty much <laughs> defines how you approach unschooling um, and just life. Would yeah. you say that this comes with years of unschooling or do you feel like people maybe are getting there faster now? Um, or maybe the, can can it be both? Does does it sometimes just take a long time to kind of come around to it being more of a mindset and a lifestyle versus how you look at your children's education or learning? Hmm. I think <laughs> so. Here's where I'm going to start saying things that are going to make people have feelings. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the the transition point ultimately is housed in the egos of the parents that, mm -hmm. um, that is always the final key that has to turn. So, because for me, and this is not to say that like, I'm some Zen guru who has, has it all figured out either, but for me, it was ultimately, I could see the learning happening. I could see, um, what would be called education going just fine. I could see, you know, but ultimately I was going through my own journey of what is it like to escape from oppressive institutions? What is it like to escape from controlling religion? What is it like um, to build a, a partnership with my husband who like the, where we're not oppressing each other, right? Like what, right. what are all these things? And that I eventually had to turn the mirror on myself and go, wait a second, I'm demanding all this freedom for myself. I'm experiencing all this incredible growth and joy and freedom. Why am I not offering that to my children? And to face my own fears about what happens if I don't wield power over them, if I don't control every aspect of their lives? Do I really think that they'll turn into horrible burdens on society who, you know, are sociopaths? Like, is that, cause that's, that's the fear that people have, right? Like that's in the back of their minds is like, it could go really bad. And it came to, it wasn't like, it is about trusting my kids, but it was really deeply about trusting myself. Um, like my, my husband likes to say that we we can't plan for everything, but we can handle anything. Mm. And I love that with even child rearing. It's like, yeah, I can't plan for everything, but I can probably handle, I can respond when something happens. And so I had to do the personal work of letting go of that ego space of letting go of that. It was finally my turn to be in charge, you know, letting go of, I, I know best always. Um, and that was really hard and really uncomfortable. And I still have to work at that all the time. But. Yeah. That, um, that discomfort of those little ego deaths <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and being faced with our own behaviors, like when, you, when your children um, call you out and they're like, no, no, that's not what you said. 
remember this is what you said and you're like oh did I say that I did say that <laughs> um I wonder is there you have um where are there maybe like landmarks along the way we haven't even talked about how long you've been unschooling how many years yeah. have you been doing this now hold how old is your oldest I, we didn't cover that <laughs> that's true okay <laughs> minor details um my Okay, so we are just about to enter birthday season. So I'm just going to say that the ages that they're about to be instead of qualifying. Um, they are 18, 15, 13, and 9. Lots of teenagers. Um, <laughs> lots of teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm sure has perked up the ears of anyone listening now because yeah. once people hear unschooling in teens, they're like, oh, got to listen. Um, like, wait a second. It all makes sense now. They are talking about teens. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I was thinking is along the way, um, while we are unschooling teenagers, um, I, there's there's so much that transforms in the way that we approach things because of that, putting the mirror up to ourselves, because of being faced with really challenging and uncomfortable situations. Would you say that there's sort of like um, a cycle that repeats? Is there anything that you feel like you've noticed, any patterns that have happened? Yes. So I feel like, I think I would describe it either as like a, almost like a, a radar ping or something where it kind of starts and then there's this circle that goes out and then it starts again, you know, ping and it goes out. Um, or a, a figure eight even of this kind of, I get scared. I project that fear onto the kids. <laughs> I, I get scared about what they're going to do. I try to implement plans to avoid that destiny, right? And then I ultimately realize some something about myself that of what I am afraid of and why I'm afraid of that. And I do some reality testing mm -hmm. of, is that a reasonable fear to hold? Um, is that actually likely to happen? And then, or I haven't experienced myself that it's like, oh, well, I hadn't experienced freedom in that area. I haven't experienced being trusted in that way. Oh, that's, that's why I'm uncomfortable as I just don't have experience. Um, this is unknown. And so I'm afraid. And then I come back to, oh, okay, I can trust myself. And then, oh, everything's fine. This is great. This is the best. We're amazing. Look at these amazing humans we're raising. Oh shit. What about this thing though? You know, <laughs> and it's this figure eight back and forth, back and forth of, of learning something about myself and then generalizing that truth, right? Like, oh, that applies to other people also. And then getting scared and it comes back in and, oh no, everything's fine. And yeah. I like a figure eight that feels I'm like I was as you were talking my head was kind of making <laughs> was kind of yes <laughs> um because yeah I think a lot of people experience this and some of us you know who've got kiddos on the older end and we've been doing it a little bit um you kind of start to notice this pattern um yeah. and if you hang out in enough support spaces and chats and you know, um, and DMs of other of other unschoolers on social media platforms, you're going to see that other people experience this too. Mm -hmm. um, and I used to find it like, oh my gosh, are we all like, like I would have a little bit of collective fear for all of us <laughs> where, where I'd be like, maybe we should be think rethinking some of these things. Um, but then I kind of turned that on its side and learned for myself that I actually find comfort 
in knowing that so many people experience this and that it has crossed the lines of pedagogies and that some of my friends who have children who are schooled in the public model have this same exact cycle yes. of thoughts. And, and yeah. it has nothing to do with how they're being educated, mm -hmm. um, but everything to do with us as parents, um, our fears and our desires for our children and, and these outcomes that we have plans for in our mind. And, and it's not all inherently, you know, negative or bad. A lot of it is because we love them because we want to see them happy and having all of their needs met. Right. Yes. And so that concern manifests in a fear that ends up projecting, uh, back onto them. Uh, so I like the way you put words around that too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, like you said, in terms of cyclicalness too, that where a lot of times when I, I talk to people who are, it seems like they're experiencing regular cycles of fear. Um, and this isn't always true, but I feel like inevitably they'll say, well, I've been doing this for a couple of years. You know, I, we just started during the pandemic and I'm like, oh, you haven't even gone through a full cycle yet. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a long cycle. And, and the more, if you have more than one child, it goes a little faster for the younger ones, right? You're like, oh, this yeah. is familiar territory. I can loop through this a little quicker. Um, but I'm always, I always say like shout out to oldest kids because they are, <laughs> well, we, I'm an oldest too. And it's like, we our, we are learning together with our oldest, especially, yeah. right? And so they they have to walk through the whole cycle with us every time. And I'm so thankful for their patience because the younger, my, you know, my youngest is like, I, I can do that loop really fast with her. It's like, oh, I'm kind of yeah. nervous. Ah, it'll be fine. It's, it's like a five minute loop, whoop, you know. But my oldest, it's, it's like a three year <laughs> loop every time. So- it it's is rough. interesting how it happens that way. And I do think that it helps. Um, it helps you to see your younger children for who they are, but also for their differences from however you experience things with your older child. Like you just learn, I think, maybe to be a little bit more agile with your approach yes. um, because they're just so different from each other. Um and the cycle does, it does slow down a little bit and you don't have to go through it quite as often. Um, but it doesn't mean that it goes away completely. And that's something that I like to, t to remind people when they ask about what it's like having a 17 year old, um, <laughs> schooler who's like ready to launch into the world. Um, we have this very like arbitrary idea in our head of like, even people who are really, really unschooled will still ask like, so he's 17. What's next? Like, <laughs> it's so interesting. Like, he's still probably got a couple more cycles left of this thing that we're talking about before, yep. you know, he's like truly launched, um, which is, I think, a great segue into another aspect of unschooling teens Yeah, that so many people wonder, like, how will I prepare them? What will they do? When will I stop worrying? You know, how will they make money? All those questions that come up, it assumes that's like 17, 18, that's like, that it's right there. Like it should be right there on the other side of that invisible line. Um, mm -hmm. Wonder if you might have anything to say about that. So many things to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> Try to choose some. Um, yeah, I think 
I think, well, I'll say for me, having an 18 year old is it's a, it's a wild thing to watch her be treated so differently in the world. Um, and also so not differently, right. To, to just, and it's helpful, I think, to, to be present to both. I don't automatically get to go with her into the doctor exam room, right? She's an adult mm. and that's a new thing for me, um, to not be there to advocate for her. And on the, at the same time, she's being the, the, I know there's some discussion about, is it adultism or childism, but the, the treatment of her as a young person is still there in society of the dismissal and that you don't really know. We have these huge expectations for you, but we also expect that you can't meet our expectations and like the stool just gets kicked out from them constantly. And I, it make, and it makes me angry. <laughs> so, um, I think when, so when I'm looking at my 18 year old who is still, and I'm in that cycle, right? That feeling of that figure eight where I'm with her in it and we're learning together at the same time, I'm watching often if I've, I've learned, I think the biggest thing I've learned with my older teens is to just hold my tongue mm. is to just wait. Uh, when I get really scared, when I get nervous, when I get angry at the way the world is treating them, when I get concerned about their lack of experience, which could genuinely be dangerous in some situations. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, when I get worried about those things is to just wait a minute because I have gone through the cycle enough times now that inevitably my husband and I were just laughing about this within a month of me freaking out about something of, you know, coming, coming to him and saying, we got to fix this because she's doing thing X, Y, Z. And if she does that for life, I'm going to murder her. Right. Like <laughs> I, that cannot be a part of our relationship. And within a month, she'll come to me totally unprompted and say, you know, I've really been thinking about thing X and I feel like maybe I need to make some shifts. And I go, Oh, you are a conscious being, you know, like yeah. <laughs> there it is. And it comes back. And so now I've, I've had that experience enough times where I can kind of trust it. And I just wait, like, I'm just going to wait. And it allows me to be present to myself. And instead of worrying about her and what she's going to do, and it's like, well, how am I going to respond if that thing happens? Right? Like, okay, yeah. she doesn't launch, she doesn't get a job, she doesn't start making money. Okay, what am I going to do? Um, she does launch, she moves out, she's doing stuff. And then she comes back to me, destitute, she spent all of her money, <laughs> she has no place to live, she's been evicted. What am I going to do? You know, none of these are life ending situations. Right. Um, and so I, for me, managing that fear then helps me be way calmer and way more open-minded and creative about how I actually help the launching happen, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, while you were talking, I was thinking about ways that I had experienced that too. Um, and how you said she would, you know, like come around after about a month of you yeah. uh, 
you know, kind of holding your tongue and not saying anything. Similar things have happened um, for us in, in the same cycle. And there's definitely been periods where um, I felt concerned about like a gap in certain skills. Um, like, for example, really worried that like he doesn't like to be in the kitchen much. He's not really a fan of touching dirty dishes or doing dirty dishes, but who is? Um, and just, you know, has never really been one to kind of spend a lot of time in the kitchen. There's, you know, he's done, he's done some kitchen prep work and, and making things and, but it's never been like part of his habit. And I found myself worrying at some point, uh, you know, maybe around 15 or so, like he's, he just doesn't do any kitchen stuff. I really think that, and then there's, you know, a little bit of me was like, it's really not fair that um, the femmes in the house are in the kitchen all the time and it seems more expected, but but the the boy in the house is is not in the kitchen. And so I was having like my own inter um, dialogue, inner dialogue about, you know, how I was feeling about him not being in the kitchen. And I just needed to like give it a rest, let it go and not worry about this thing, this possible thing that could be a future of many possible futures. Like he could possibly you know, in five years, not know how to boil water um, and, you know, not be able to feed himself. Is that likely? Probably not. <laughs> right. But something would, but something would happen, you know, and it will, and it will change my mind about it and remind me like, oh my gosh, you are a conscious being. <laughs> uh, like he's with his girlfriend and he calls me up and he's like, hey, uh, we want to make this thing. What do we do? And I walk him through over the phone, you know, step by step. These are the things you guys need. You guys have what you need. Um, and then he makes the thing like there's a trust there built that if there's something he doesn't know, he's going to ask. Um, or if he really needs support in something, he's going to say, hey, I really need, I need your support in this thing. Um, so there's a key there of, of leaning into biting your tongue and trusting. <laughs> yes. But it's hard well, to trust. It's really hard to trust. It's so hard to trust. Well, and I, I come back all the time to, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm hearing Akila's voice in my head right now of like, that's schoolishness, that's schoolishness. Um, and even um, John Holt of, you know, I think it's John Holt of, you know, well, perhaps we don't trust because we were never told that we could trust ourselves, right? But we were never invited to that. And yeah, because I think all the time, I'm amazed sometimes when someone will ask me, how do you know how to do that? And I was like, you're aware of the internet, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's how I know how to do that. That wasn't something that was in my household or that I somehow just intuitively knew how to do. I, I asked <laughs> the, the oracle the question and it told me, right? Like, yeah. told me how to do that. And yeah, I think so often, and that's where I keep coming back to that the beauty of what we would call unschooling, right? Like what we're, this life that we're living with our teens is actually not about preparing them to be adults. Like that is not the goal, um, which sounds crazy to people, but that the goal of traditional, or not traditional, but the goal of conventional schooling, right? Is to prepare members of a certain society, it's to prepare right. you to function in a particular way in our right. culture. Um, that's that's the goal. And a new we, flash. We don't want to act that particular way, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like, and that, that's and that doesn't seem to be working out so great for the vast majority of people. 
Like, <laughs> yeah. And so if what we're doing actually in this life is building relationship, is building into and giving them space for our children to trust themselves, to trust other people, to know the difference between um, trusting someone who's trustworthy and someone who's not. To know, it's like, that's what we're offering them. And people who can have good relationships, people who can ask for help, people whose sense of self-worth is not determined by others, it's determined by them. Um, those people do well period. And it doesn't matter how much money they make. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter what job they have. It's they will do well because the things that really ultimately sustain humanity, you know, these collective communal senses of being, they'll have that. And so who cares? Like, who cares right. if well, they're... they're scrapping for the pieces that are not enough over there. They're not scrapping for that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We really early on, um, again, my, my husband is much more wise than I give him credit for sometimes. Um, but <laughs> he, he was talking about really, really early on in just parenting in general about, um, just this tidbit that the, the CIA or whoever handles counterfeit money, FBI, that the people who work in the counterfeiting department do not spend time studying counterfeit bills. They spend time studying the real thing. They're touching it, they're feeling it, they're looking at it, they're using it, so that when something false comes through their hands, they immediately just go, oh, something's wrong with this. Mm. And so they're not being taught how to recognize the scam they're being taught to be super familiar with the real thing so that the scam is intuitive. They intuit the scam. And, and we've talked about with our children, it's like, that's what we want, want them to have real relationships. We want them to have been really loved. We want them to have been really trusted. We want them to have been really empowered so that when someone isn't offering them that, it's some little red flag goes up inside them. This isn't right. This, yeah, something's yucky here. I don't like this. Um, and that's a way more protective factor than, hey, don't let anybody tell you, blah, 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 blah. Like, not that you shouldn't have those lessons, right? But knowing the real thing and not being willing to settle for less than that is a way higher protective factor yes. than being taught to be afraid of scams, right? Yes. You gave me chills thinking about, <laughs> thinking, about um, thinking about young people building their own intuition um, based on healthy relationships is just huge. Like it's a huge turnaround from the way many of us were raised, the way our parents were raised, the way our grandparents were raised. Um, and I think it's just going to be a massive shift in the world if um, we could just get enough people to see partnership and relationship, even if they don't unschool as a pedagogy. Like, this is why the work of people out there who are not talking about just unschooling, but are talking about, you know, partnership and relationship and centering humanity like Nikolai Pizarro, um, 
is so important because this can actually be at the core of our relationships with our children and our homes outside of however we educate. Um, and I think it could be life-changing. Yes. Well, and I would, I would want to add to that too, that as an encouragement to parents that real relationships and healthy relationships are not perfect relationships. Right. Because I think there's a lot of pressure, especially I hear from, you know, unschooling parents a lot of this pressure to like, well, the unschooling life should be one that's happy all the time. And my children should have everything they want or I, you know, the say yes idea. Right. Um, And I want to say this, like, it is not about avoiding conflict. It's not about avoiding problems. And that if you were just somehow a better person, you would never fight with your kids or you'd never fight with your partner or that's, that is not the truth. Um, We are all people, but the trick is to learn to repair. And that's the skill that most of us were never taught. Um, That's the skill that most of us struggle with. You know, we just kind of we just, we walk away from things that don't work for us, right? We walk away from the job. We walk away from the relationship. We walk away from the struggle because we have no clue how to engage in uncomfortable dialogues that move us towards reparation and redemption of that thing. And so I feel like that's the work. It's, It's not to never screw up. It's to be able to say, I'm sorry. You know, it's not to never get your feelings hurt. It's to be able to say my feelings got hurt and I know how to take care of myself and I know how to talk to you about how you hurt my feelings. Um, Those are the things that like do that work. (laughs) Forget job training. (laughs) Don't do job training. Repair work. Just learn how to rupture and repair, rupture and repair. That's, that's the magic. And I think in the early years of unschooling, if you start with your children very young, it, it, a lot of the times feels like it's about bedtimes and unlimited cookies and whether or not they should brush their teeth and, you know, all those other things. And those things are obviously very important to a a young person's life and their parents and trying to find solutions to those things. And um, I think every family just has to find what works for them rather than applying like a, a blanket dogmatic rule for how to execute unschooling perfectly with your young children. Um, but definitely the, the uncomfortable part of saying when your feelings are hurt, saying when you didn't like being talked to a certain way, um, you know, saying when you need help and you can't do everything, like getting rid of, I I would say there's been this like, um, slow sort of. Um, I don't want to say killing of, but there's like this, there's like this cult of motherhood, um, like that is very present, at least in uh, American mothers, um, that is like makes mothers martyrs and like self-sacrificing and, you know, like I can do everything. It's okay. Just let me do it all. Like, it's been a very, very slow killing of that for me. I don't really have any other phrase other than killing, but like having to kill that little cult that lives in my mind, I don't know where she or they come from, but, um, you know, they just live in there and try to tell me like that I can do everything. And it's, that's, I think a huge limiting factor 
um, when you're the parent at home, if you happen to also be um, a mother, there's like that societal pressure of like having everything together, keeping a clean home and, um, and keeping everyone happy. And I don't know, I'm not really sure what I'm saying other than there's something there about the cult of motherhood and, um, needing to separate myself from it. And I don't know if other mothers feel that way. Um, but if they do shout out to you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, I relate very much to that because I think, and especially it's been concerning to me in the last few years to watch not only this continued push, not like, so I would say not so much that mothers can do everything, but that they ought to do everything. Yeah. And, and if you can't, then use some drugs. Like, and, and the mommy wine culture that has kind of risen up of like, you know, mommy can't get through the day without wine. Like there's t-shirts and bags and signs for your house. And, you know, just like, (laughs) holy crap. Um, of, yeah, that I mean, and that's again, that's a whole nother podcast. But um, <laughs> talking about that, that pressure that is put, I think, especially, I, I mean, I would say on any at home parent, but particularly on female identifying parents at home, female presenting identi- um, parents at home, that we are supposed to do everything and and that's, and that's also supposed to be what we love the most. Like, yeah, it's, it's our greatest goal and our greatest good. And I think the, the counter to that has been good, but which has been like, well, also work then also have a job like that. That's the reclaiming. Um, but that's still this message of you ought to be doing everything. And I don't know any working parent who doesn't say they miss their kids. And I don't know any at-home parent who doesn't at some point go through a phase of, I wish I was doing more out in the world. And we get so many messages about it's all or none. And because we have so practiced cutting ourselves off from ourselves, we don't, we just kind of sit in the loss and we're just lonely all around. And we feel like we're failing at everything instead of being like, oh, I'm just a person. <laughs> like, yeah. I just have as many hours in the day as anybody else. And here are the things I've chosen to spend my hours on today. And I'm going to reevaluate occasionally. And I'm going to be okay with that I'm at home and I'm going to own that proudly. Or I'm going to be okay with that I'm working more outside of the home. Or I'm educating my children in this way. Or I'm not. Or I'm my dishes are clean or mine are not. And it just how about if we just be cool with people living different ways? Yeah. And I'm living different too. My way isn't the best. I'm not even sure it's the best for me at every given moment, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking about like getting mothers um, or the, you know, the parent that's at home um, with the children, if they're, if they're home, um, I was thinking about, how I read the phrase cult of motherhood. Um, I want to say it was Angela Davis who coined that term. I don't know if she coined it or if I just read it in one of her essays, but if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, she talks a lot about how in the past, um, white women's motherhood 
was like very removed from like actually participating with your young people. And a lot of the mothering duties were essentially um, given to women of color to take on those roles for them. And so it it's almost like there's this weird standard for mothers having been doing it all, like historically all the time because of this time in history where we were just putting that burden on some, well, I don't want to say it's a burden, but putting that labor onto someone else so that we could, I don't know, what were women doing? Were they playing bingo or (laughs) I don't know what they were doing Um, at that time. Um, Right. It's just, it's odd. And I think that's probably why that phrase cult of motherhood has stuck with me because it's, it actually reminds me of like this idea that women could do everything and, and like, really that's, it's quite false and mothers are not any more capable than, than fathers, um, at a day's worth of child rearing. We all have the same amount of hours in the day, like you said, um, to, to be with each other and to raise our children Um, and we can only do as much as we can do, you know? Right. Right. Um, Yeah. I, I, I think even as, as you were saying that, like, what were women doing? (laughs) (laughs) I'm always struck when I read, um, uh, like 1800s European literature, right? So Jane Austen or, or those kind of things. And where part of the training of a young woman was to manage the household, Right. It wasn't necessarily to child rear. It was managing the house. Um, and I feel like that's such a great example of how the goalposts for women keep getting moved. Mm. And as our values shift, it is always the definition of motherhood that changes first and the requirements that come with it, that that's the shift. So it's, it's, yeah, it's gentle. We say gentle parenting, but let's be real. It's moms, right, who are supposed to be more gentle. It's moms who are supposed to be managing their anger um, or their whatever. It's moms. And and as you see, as the decades go by, you see the roles of women constantly changed, but it's always being dictated to us <laughs> what we're supposed to be doing, right? It's yeah. not it's not moms coming together. It's not collective motherhood. It's not moms coming together and saying, we're going to be like this now because we think that's better. It's always some cultural movement telling us, well, you should be home. Oh, you've been at home. That's not enough. You should be at work. Oh, you've been at work. You're at work too much. You should be at, you know, you need to also be the team mom. You need to all anyway. And that's a whole nother podcast, but these are all the messages we're sending our teens too, right? That we're trying to carefully undo as they approach these adulthood years of how do we help them choose their own path? And this is, this is the actual work. It's not jobs. It's not, do they know enough algebra? It's, yeah. it's this. And also I wonder, um, maybe we could, uh, we could help some folks understand what it means to choose, to choose a path. Um, because when I, when I think about that, or when I talk about that with my teenager, um, it's not like a, a drop down menu of a selection. And you're like, (laughs) I'll take that one, please. (laughs) (laughs) Um, choosing your path is a day, is a daily thing. It's every day. 
um, and that partnership doesn't just end because they're 17 or they're 18 or, or they're 19 and, and it's going to look different in every family. Um, and every young person may need varying degrees of support or not support. Some young people may want to just be like, I'm out, I'm leaving, I'm going to backpack. See ya. Mm -hmm. Thanks for all the support. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where others might want to hang out at home, you know, until they're 22, 25, 28, 30. May they live at, you know, like it's not about an age or, or, or like meeting some, some specific mark. So, yeah, I, so something that's been helpful for me is, um, to try to go back to my very early adult years, because I definitely followed the conventional path of like turned 18. I I went to college, you know, moved, moved out and never looked back. Right. Like that was it. And because of that, there is kind of, I'm, I've realized as I, as I think about my own life skills, there is a blurry section of in my early twenties that I don't know how I learned that. I don't remember learning how to, I know I know how to do it now. Now I'm really confident in my cooking. Now I'm really confident in my home management, my finances, my um, communication, my, you know, I'm, I'm confident in those things now. I don't remember learning how to do that. And I think, And for me, also that not remembering how to learn is deeply connected to stress because I was out. And so it was a survival. It was, I have to learn this now, right? There was urgency to it. And it's when we are able to offer our kids that same exact learning path, but without the stress, we don't, we don't know what that looks like. (laughs) (laughs) And, and we're afraid of like, well, I, I learned how to cook and do all my laundry in like three months because I had to. And it's like, well, isn't that sad? Like, what if instead of saying that was the best way for that to happen to you, we're just like, well, that's how you learned. How might it be different? And I think that's the piece of offering that journey, choosing that path to our kids is that there isn't, it's not an emergency for them to have it figured out. Yeah. And for so many of us, we have normalized the emergency levels we were living in all the time. That yeah. ev- everything was an emergency. Everything was a big deal. Everything was, if we don't figure this out, we have nowhere to live next month, right? If we don't mm-hmm. figure this out, we're not going to eat. If we don't, and like, that's not normal. <laughs> that's not. Yeah. That's not how we're supposed to be. And I think if we can let go of, if we can acknowledge that that's what we're feeling, where there's not an actual emergency for our children happening, we lived in a state of emergency. That's actually trauma inside of us, right? That needs to be unpacked and healed um, to slow down. Oh, we're actually safe. Oh, my kids are safe. This is, this is okay. We're okay right now. Um, and not that we don't face struggles, right? Not that we don't face crisis, we don't face emergencies, but um, for the most part, we can handle it as the adults. Our kids are safe because they're with us. Yeah. And, and so it's going to be okay. We They don't have to feel 
the pressure that we feel um, or that we felt. Right. And but that again comes back to those little ego deaths, right? Those little things we learn about ourselves and those little ways we try to offer health to our kids that wasn't offered to us. Right. And I think also a lot of us have the mindset of leaving, you know, right out of high school or maybe even before we finished high school mm -hmm. because um, we, well, I want to say a lot of adults don't recognize the role their parents' relationship approach, you know, whether they knew it or not or however they were raised, like regardless of that, like with no moral attachment to it at all, just they don't realize the role that their parents' approach to parenting played in their desire to flee home ASAP. <laughs> um, they sort of, I think, I think a lot of adults categorize it as like rite of passage. That's just what you do. You leave home, you make it on your own. But I'm looking around and there's not a ton of viable options for people at the ripe old age of 17 or 18 to, <laughs> to um, you know, make a home and a life for themselves right now, at least in, in North America, um, without some support. And so why send them out there to be under that pressure if you don't have to? You know, why not partner with them to find solutions that work for them in a trusting relationship um, where they feel safely secure and and they know they can venture out and come back you know yes it just makes yeah. so much more sense <laughs> <laughs> it does well and I think so many adults um, sometimes too and I think this is a human thing like I don't think this is a a sign of weakness but I think we we try to make sense of our lives and, and of our path, right? And so there's a lot of adults that I bump into who will kind of have this perspective on because I am the person who I am now, because I have the particular circumstances that I have now, that must be the only way it could have gone. And this is the best, but I'm in the best timeline, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm the best version of me. And it's a very scary thing to consider what if it had been different? Like that's that's a slippery path to walk down, right? Because that can be a creative exploration or that can lead to some real depression and concern. So it, it has to be entered into carefully, I think. But that, but like you're saying, it's like, what what would it be like to just kind of objectively hold and observe what was my family like growing up? And how did that affect me? What if it had been different? Um, how I, I had somebody say to me once as a justification for her own educational experience, she's like, well, if I hadn't been forced to take, you know, these science classes and things, I would never have become the doctor that I am. Mm. And, and I was like, okay, you know, great. And then, <laughs> and then I said, well, what might you have been? And she had no answer for that. That had never crossed her mind. And, and it was like, and later in other conversations, there was kind of this exploration. I don't know, I might've been an artist or I really like to dance. And I was like, okay, well, could that have also been a good life? You know? Yeah. yeah. And so that doesn't mean you need to regret what you're doing and you don't need to long for the things you don't have either. But um, I, I feel like that's, 
we don't want to get stuck in the trap of because I have walked this path and I have ended up who I am, my kids have to walk the same path because the end of that sentence is so they end up like me. Yeah. And that's not the goal. The goal is for them to be them. Mm-hmm. And so and I, I say that to my my oldest, my daughter all the time, where she'll say something. She's very different than me. And where she'll say things and I kind of cock my head to the side and I, I go, and she goes, you're realizing right now that we're different people, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, yes, I'm being reminded that you are not me. Um, and that that's a lovely thing. And so I don't know where she's going to go. And I don't know what the steps and the order are going to be because I would do it differently, but I don't know that that's the best way, you know, like (laughs) certainly not the best way for her. So but trying I think to make space we all just that. like living is just a collection of it. Like it's a collection of moments and all of those moments like add up to something. And at any yes. point in time, the moments could change or they could, or they could like come on really fast and you have a lot more moments and then you have less moments and like all of that makes you who you are and it makes your life what it is and it makes your relationships what they are. And like, you can't predict it. It's just, it just is. Well, and I think that's, that's real love, right, too, is, is that I can't predict it. And all I can do, and well, and the invitation is to let those moments really show me who I am. And, oh, I'm like this, and you're like that. We are different. And that is the essence of how I love you best, is when I can really say you are you and I am me and we are not the same. And that's good. Like that's love and that's the road to partnership and that's connection. And so that's what I want. I don't want little, like in some ways, I think the world would be way easier if everyone was like me. And per our previous discussion, there would be a lot of impulsive decisions made. And I think it actually might not work out great all the time. (laughs) Um, And it's good. It's good to have people in our lives who are different than us. And that doesn't have to be an opposites situation. But it's good to have people who are different and to really celebrate those differences and not be stuck in competition with each other, not be stuck in comparing ourselves, not be stuck in our worth being bound up in the differences. Um, But to just let that be a celebration point, like, oh, everything is new all the time. Everybody has a perspective to offer me. Everybody has a path I can learn something from. Um, And that's just as true of my children as it is of other adults that I'm around. And I get to live in a house with, you know, five other people who are not me. And it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. It's, oh, I have all these opportunities to see all the different possibilities of life played out right in front of me. And I get a front row seat. Yeah. That's awesome. This is reminding me of a, a poem I wrote um, at some point. I don't even know when it was, but it was, it was of this, of this same energy, but it was basically like, a, a poem to my children to let them know that um, I I know they're not me and I'm very aware they're not me, but sometimes I get in my own way and I forget that they're not me and I forget it. The reason I forget is because I'm still learning that I am not them, my parents. Mm. Um, 
And it's, I mean, although I'm not as much in that learning anymore and, and, and it's not so heavy learning, I still, it still comes up for me. So it is really nice, um, to hear you describe partnership in that way and your separateness and the beauty of your separateness, because it is so beautiful to see these people that you made, um, like be so different from you, um, and hold the space for them to be different because there was, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking for myself here and maybe many other people, but there wasn't a lot of space held for us to be different, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No kidding. Same, same, same. Mm-hmm. Everybody be the same. So, yeah. And when you were talking about uh, that person and their and their career and, like, if this hadn't happened to them, they wouldn't be this. Oh, it sounds so eerily familiar to, like, chancla culture. And, like, if, if, if I hadn't been spanked, then I would have never – I would have never learned my lesson. Like, what? Right. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, there's, there's nowhere else you could have learned that? There's no <laughs> other possibility? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With kids, it's like the reason we have all these movies and stuff about AI waking up and destroying the world, right? And that's so terrifying is because it's like this emergent consciousness, right? And I think we forget sometimes like, hey, spoiler alert, that's what's in your house. Like you created these little meat bags (laughs) and they have an emergent consciousness. Like they come awake and they come online make friends with them, right? Like <laughs> love the emergence that comes out of them. And that, that's, that's just what I was thinking of as you were saying that. It's that's like, so yeah. funny. They woke up, like deal yeah. with it. You know, I think there is a distinct time. I don't know when it is. Um, and for all of my children, it's been different. And, you know, my youngest is about to be 12 and they've been unschooled their entire life. And so their life is very different than my 17 year olds. But um, there is a time when they go from like sort of passively participating in this really fun life um, because, you know, we have had just a lot of fun Um, previous to the pandemic beginning. It was just a hell of a ride. Um, And there's a, there's a time where they're like passively participating and they're just kind of like going with the flow. And I think they do just come online at some point and they're like, Whoa, no, we're not doing that. Um, that's not what I want. And maybe for some people it happens when their child is two and maybe for some people it happens when their child is 14. Um, but they do, they come online and they let you know how they feel and they will test you. Um, and they know if you are weak, they can smell it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is something actually that developmentally happens in the brain around 10. There is, we're preteens, right? Like we talk about preteens kind of in a derogatory way in our society, like junior high is everybody's worst nightmare kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something that happens at 10 where the the brain totally, oh, I'm a person. Like <laughs> I have, and I disagree with you and I'm not sure how to express that. And then that's what feeds into those adolescent years where adolescence is really a revisiting of the toddler years of, can I touch this? You know, can I, what happens if I do that? It's boundary testing. And, but now they're doing it with vocabulary and physical size and all these kind of things. And, um, and that's, yeah. And that's where people get scared of their teenagers. And it's like, no, 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 your, your kids are just, 
conscious human beings who woke up, realized they had opinions, but now they can tell you what their opinions are. Are you going to welcome those opinions? Are you going to have dialogue about those things? Or are you going to be at war with your children? Like, right. That's the choice you have here. I can't stop giggling because I'm literally picturing all of the times that this happens for <laughs> us. And like, like currently, um, we live in an apartment and our stairwell, is, we live in a very old building and our stairwell echoes. And so every apartment, you can basically hear from the stairwell anything that's happening in any apartment. And so I'm really conscious of our sound because we're home, you know, like more than other people. And we live, you know, near some elderly people and there's a language barrier and they probably don't know what is being said sometimes when they're just getting real loud and really intense. And I'll be like, guys, chill. Like, seriously, people can hear out in the stairwell. Like, stop. And my oldest is doing this exact thing that you're saying where he's testing, like, can I say this? Can I say it this loud? Is this too loud? How about this? Is this too loud? <laughs> like, it's just like, seriously, I don't want to have to say this, but there's like old people all around us and we probably should just respect them. It's 1030 PM. <laughs> so right. yeah, they do. They, they do behave that way um, for a second time. Yes. <laughs> And then it just happens again and again and again. Yep. But yep. yeah. So we're coming up on an hour. Um, and I usually try not to take too much of, of folks' time, but um I did want to ask you this this one other thing. Um, and if 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 it's too much pressure, you don't have to answer, but if you can think of three tips for folks listening, um three tips on how to connect with your teenagers, no matter how big or small. Just things that you can do with your teens and tweens are, are ones who have come online and have an opinion <laughs> um, that, you know, parents could try out. Okay. Um, off the top of my head, I know this is going to be one of those things where we're going to end this and I'm going to go, oh, I should have said. Um, How about you give three and I'll give three. I'll, I'll perfect. Give there. Okay. No <laughs> um, so off the top of my head, I would say... And I'm going to do the annoying thing too, where I'm going to be super vague and what does this mean to you kind of thing. But um, I would say, get curious, just get curious. Um, and in that curiosity, always take a beat. When they ask a question, when they say a thing, take a pause and then ask them a question back. <laughs> just get clarity. Um, be curious about what they, what, well, what do you mean by that? You know, where do, what context did you hear that in? Um, what do you see that looking like? Why would, what, and well, okay. And here's the tip with that. I'm sorry. This is going to be rambly. Be curious and don't ask why. Mm. Don't ask why. Mm. If, if people knew why they would tell you immediately. Um, so don't ask why, ask how, what, where, when, who, Tell me ask, more. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more. Say those things. Don't ask, why would you, why do you want to, why did you do that? What were you, you know, don't, don't go there. Ask, what does that mean to you? What would you like to do? How would you accomplish that? Where would you go to do that thing? Who would you do that with? Um, ask us, ask other questions. Be curious. Um, I think another thing would be invite them into important partnership as much as is tolerable for you. Mm. So 
if it's tolerable to you to let your kids help plan dinner, if that's what you can handle, let them do that as much as possible. If you can tolerate uh, giving them a say on vacation, give them that. If you can tolerate giving them a say in family finances, give them that um, and give it to them genuinely uh, and acknowledge the places where you can't tolerate that, that mm. it's it's not necessarily their lack. It's not necessarily that they're incapable, that they're not good enough. All those things that teens sometimes worry about themselves. It's that you can't tolerate it. Um, and that I, I think my third tip would be, and this is for connecting with teens, is if you can, stay up late. Oh, that's a good one. If you can, stay up late. And whatever that means to your teen. Um, because my I've found repeatedly with my teenagers that <laughs> it's like, I'm ready, I'm ready to go to bed at 10 30 11 o'clock and how many times i have gotten a text right around then or a soft knock on the door or something <laughs> and it's like hey can i ask you and it's comes it comes so light can i ask about something sure three hours later when we're <laughs> done talking about their friend and the dating relationship and drama and capitalism and yeah systems of oppression you know i always go to bed exhausted and also so thankful i had that conversation that was a huge thing and it seems like there is something about the teenage brain that has deep thoughts late at night they really do. So if you think your kids aren't having deep thoughts, maybe you're just not staying up late enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> and not in a pressure kind of way, but just that could be. And so find space. If you can't stay up late, find a space, go for a drive in the car, go for a walk, do something where you don't have to make eye contact, but they can talk. Um, that those, those are the, the special places to talk. And if your kid says, can I talk to you about something? just gird yourself and say yes always yeah always and if if it has a huge emotional impact if it brings something up for you whatever their question is or their topic it's okay to say "Ooh, i need to think about that can we talk about this tomorrow that's yeah. okay you don't have to answer right then but try to be as open as possible because if they don't ask you that question they're going to ask somebody for sure so for sure. Okay. I was trying to think and listen very intently. <laughs> so I didn't really hard. do any, I didn't really do any thinking, but I was thinking as you were talking, um, you said go for a drive, going for a drive, being shoulder to shoulder has always been something that has worked for me and all three of my children. Um, whether we're together, all of us, or just me and one of them, some of the best conversations happen shoulder to shoulder. Um, and I would say my, okay, first tip, would be in the car, pass them the aux cord. At least that's what teens call it. It's so funny because most of us are driving around cars with Bluetooth and you don't need an aux cord. But um, if you drive an older car, uh, my van was a, was an older and, you know, use an aux cord. But hand your children the rights to play the music in the vehicle. 
Mm. Um, there is just almost no better way to connect with teenagers than to jam to the kind of music that they like um, and really hear what brings you know, pleasure to them in some way, whether it is because it helps them get in their sad girl feelings or because it makes them feel hopeful or whatever, like just whatever their music is. Um, and don't judge it and don't critique it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it's okay to say if it, cause they're probably going to ask you, and I'll be honest. Hey, did you like that? Or what'd you think? It's okay to say that's not my particular flavor. Like here's what I enjoy. It's okay to say what you, if you don't like it, don't lie to them, but don't critique their music. Don't tell them like, well, back in my day, like there's nothing more boomer than back in my day. So <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was younger, this is how it used to be. I have heard myself say a few of those things and I'm like, whoa, slow your roll. <laughs> yep. We're going too far. Uh, next tip would be uh, texting family texts, like a family chat group is great, um, for us to just be able to BS with each other, you know, send funny memes to each other. We send voice notes. My, my, my two oldest love to send voice notes with farts. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've got farts, fart voice notes etched into my heart right now. Okay. Um, or we just text, can someone pick up milk from the store? Or I'm going to be there in five minutes. Can someone meet me at the gate? Um, or I'll drop photos from like their early childhood in the family text just to be like, boop, look at that. <laughs> um, those are, those are good ways to connect. Um, I need one more. <sighs> I would say talk to them about their identity and their self-expression if they are open to the conversation or be ready and open for the conversation about identity and expression. Um, because I think a lot of young people, teenagers specifically, are trying to figure themselves out and need um, safety to try on as many different looks as they want. Um, and I think it's great to discuss how you can support them in whatever their desired appearances or, you know, whether it's a discussion about pronouns or sexuality or just like trying on a new look for a little while and trying to be really supportive of that um, in whatever way you can. Um, obviously, we can't like supply a new wardrobe every time they want to change aesthetics, but um, we can thrift. <laughs> Right. And we can find other ways, you know what I mean, to, to uh, help them feel comfortable in their bodies and express themselves. Um, those were not quite as as uh, concise as I wanted them to be, but. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Well, and it actually made me think, I think, to what you were saying about letting them try on identities without being boomery about it. The more stories we can tell about our process of figuring our identities out, we just we just normalize for them that it is a process. Yeah. Like, the more stories we can tell about, oh yeah, I remember when I had a fight with a friend. I remember when I cut all my hair off this one time, or I remember when I did this thing. Um, it humanizes us. It normalizes their experience for them, and it's a great connection point too. For sure. And also, I think some of these things are connected. Some of your tips and my tips are connected with how they work with each other and complement each other. Like um, sharing music, you may find out that 
your teenagers listening to Deftones. And hey, hey, you used to listen to Deftones. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. Look, we match. And then they're like, oh, look, you like a thing that I like. And maybe they'll think it's cool. And maybe they'll be like, okay, this is instantly not cool. <laughs> and that's okay too. But, you know, it just provides new new ways to connect. And I think, yeah, you're right. Humanizes us and reminds them like, oh, you were also 17 once. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. This has been such a great conversation. I feel like I could probably do an entire other hour of just more teen juiciness around unschooling and partnering. And I know lots of people want to hear more. So maybe we can do another one one day. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot. I feel like we laid a lot of groundwork here and there could be a lot more um, practical if people had questions or those kind of things. Thank you so much, Erin, for joining me. And thank you all for listening. This was such a good conversation. If you're a Spotify listener, you can submit questions through the Spotify app. They've added a new feature. If Erin and I get enough questions, we can come back together again and answer them and discuss more. I know this is a huge topic um, because all of us care about our young people, especially those who are approaching adulthood. If you're looking to connect with Erin, She's a member of the Unschool Files community Discord, so you can chat with her there. You'll be able to find a link to that and all the other things related to what I'm up to over on my website, theunschoolfiles.com. You can also support my work, help me get some equipment, keep my website up and running, keep the Discord up and running by becoming a patron or picking up some swag on my website or maybe even some past issues of the zine if you haven't had a chance to check those out. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You will find all the things related um, in the show notes. And until next time, stay kind to each other.